Hello and welcome to Perspectives, the APT's podcast which explores contemporary issues related to torture prevention and dignity in detention. I'm Almudena Garcia, APT's Digital Communication Advisor, and we're delighted to share with you the second episode in a two-part series exploring the psychology of police interviewing. Associate Professor Dr. Kylie Chung is Head of Psychology at the University of Reading, Malaysia. A leading researcher in forensic psychology, her research explores how psychology can be applied to improve criminal justice systems, with a focus on investigative interviewing practices. This episode was recorded at a seminar in Kuala Lumpur on the Mendes Principles on Effective Interviewing. We resume with Dr. Kai Lee describing how an investigator's presumptions about a person's guilt or innocence can influence the conduct of an interview. Going back to this idea that interrogation is a guilt-presumptive process. So whenever you have some expectations, it, it will activate a behavioral confirmation process. So if you think somebody is innocent, it will influence the way which you conduct the interview or the investigation. As opposed to if you think a person is guilty, it will also influence your behavior towards that or how you, how you perceive that case. And this is what we mean by behavioral confirmation. So a very interesting experiment that was again a typical mock crime where you've got people who are asked to do something, um, pretend to do something bad and somebody who were innocent, and then they were being questioned by the interrogators, and the process was being recorded, the interview was being recorded. And now, interestingly now, what is that? They manipulated the interrogators' expectation. So they told the so-called detectives, who are also participants, they said, okay, the people that you will interview later on, one out of five of them are innocent. And then, you know, they would say, the people that you interview later on, four out of five of them have actually committed the crime. So that they have, an, the, the probability of people that they interview, four out of five, will be guilty, right? So this is the guilty expectation. Do you think that that's going to influence how you conduct the interview or your the likely outcome of what you think the interview is? If you think four out of five is guilty, what would you do? Again, you know, we, we think that the police interrogation is a very simple job. It's actually a very difficult job, right? right? We don't know. What, what would you actually do? You would, you would try a little bit harder to, to make sure people confess so that it matches your expectation that four out of five people are guilty. Yeah? So that is indeed what they found. So this idea that if you believe that somebody was guilty in the guilty expected condition, you will try harder to get them to confess the crime because your expectation is that they are guilty. In general, it's a coercive technique, a psychologically manipulative technique. And this is a, a, a very famous quote. These methods produce false confessions because they convince innocent suspects that their situation are hopeless, just as surely as they convict, uh, convince the guilty that they are caught. Again, reflecting back to the poll that we've done, you will never confess to a crime that you did not commit. Everybody thinks that it is illogical to do so. You must be stupid to confess to something that you didn't do. It doesn't make sense to me. We think that it's illogical. But it's actually a very, very rational decision-making process. Because if 
the police officers told you that if you do not confess, you will be deprived. I will keep you here indefinitely. You won't be able to go home. Your family will be harmed. Things like that. You know, like just now the interview they said, you know, that my mother told me that if I didn't do this, um, you know, I, I would die here. So the odds, go to prison or die in, die in custody. I might, so, I might as well go to prison than to die in custody. Right? At least if I was in prison, I can appeal to get, you know, to, 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 to get somebody to save me. So when you, you are placed in that situation, confessing is actually a very, very rational decision-making process. It's not that, you know, people are just illogical. It's actually a decision-making that is understandable. So this helps us explain why people do not remain silent. Because you want to get out of that situation, you want to ensure that you've got every opportunity to prove that you're innocent. Okay, I'm going to just talk a little bit about this idea of compliance as well as obedience. And I think this is something very interesting within our culture. This culture of hierarchy, culture of obedience, that adults are always right, authority is always right. And if you comply with that, you're more likely to do things that are probably not necessarily ethical in your, in your own terms. Okay, so this is what we call coerced compliance. Very psychologically oriented, and that is the reason why some people are more likely to, to um, be vulnerable to false confessions. Okay, as, as you may be aware of, the Mendes principles and the, the peace model is very much based on sort of rapport building. And we always have this sort of question and ask, okay, when you build rapport with people, are you trying to be sympathetic, empathic towards them? Um, and, and imagine sometimes, right, if, and I'm sure police officers will, will know this too well, is that when you get somebody who confessed to you about something that's really, really unpleasant, and this rapport building, it's a very, very difficult job. And to assume that anybody can do it is, is a very, very dangerous thing to do. But, but the idea is that when, when you have a lot of these rapport-based type um, training and, and interestingly just for, for, for your information is that the way in which we understand rapport at least malaysians are slightly different from the way in which um, many western or europeans understand rapport building um, so we've done some research in that and we're, we're thinking that if you understand rapport in a very very different way it will have implications on how you conduct the rapport building part of the investigative interview so we have some preliminary work looking at rapport building where um, in a very, very professional sense, uh, when you build rapport with people, you are very uh, professional, right? And, and in very individualistic culture, it's, it's, it's okay to assume some space. In our very collectivist culture, we look at things as very harmony-based. We look at things as uh, trying to not, not, not create any conflict. So if you understand rapport in that way, Sometimes, if a police becomes very, very nice to you, you might think, do you have anything behind, you know, why, why are you nice to me? And then we notice that in children, actually, in my work with uh, in, uh, children, is when the, the, te uh, with the in interviewers are very nice to children, their memory is actually worse. Because they start to think that it's a game. But if you're very authoritarian, authoritative, and you say that, okay, this is a this task that I want you to do, I want you to remember as much as you can, they actually perform better. So there's something, again, it's preliminary data, we think that something is going on in terms of how we understand hierarchy. So 
my point is, it's it's sometimes it's very easy for us to think that oh something it works well let's just go ahead with it but there are some very very interesting cultural differences that we need to take into account but this this doesn't mean that we cannot do it it just means that we need to take a little bit more of a different approach to 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 um approaching these things so going back to this so when you have these sort of soft sell techniques you know minimization where you give your suspects a very false sense of security oh you know no woman should be on the street looking that sexy so any normal man will do will do what you did, right? So the idea is that you 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 make the suspect identify with your your, your views, and to get them to speak, um, or you scare them with the you scare them with the fact that if you don't if you don't confess, uh, I'm going to ensure you get death penalty or something. If you threaten people with serious consequences, is what we call maximization. But when you imply leniency, is also very interesting. When a police officer implies leniency, even though they have no control over what the sentencing decision is supposed to be, is also likely to get people to falsely confess. So, one of the techniques that they, they tell the police, they recommend police officers to do is that when you should pre present them with an alternative question. So you could ask them questions like, when you first grabbed her by the side of the road, did you intend to rape her or did you just plan to rob her? Which is a better option? Remember that after many, many same questions again and again and again and again in the six-hour interrogation, sometimes people will just settle for the less serious one because rape is seen to be more morally unacceptable. Or it's another thing, questions like, oh, is, is this the first time something has happened? Or have you done this um, things a hundred of times before? Again, hundred of times looks hundred times more worse. So you might just pick the one. Now, I'm not saying that everybody will give it to this, but it has been shown to be highly dangerous if we're using it with people with intellectual disability. If you ask people with mental disabilities, they are more likely to give it to this question. And that is why the Mendes principle advocates open questions. It applies to suspect interviewing, witness interviewing, victim interviewing, which is true because if you ask a victim of a sexual abuse, for instance, um, did your perpetrator wear a green shirt or a blue shirt. What they have found is that if somebody with an intellectual disability, they are more likely to simply pick an option. Not because, not because they don't know, but they, they think that you want them to pick an option. So that's why we advocate open questions. So instead of asking if they wear a blue or a shirt, red, what color shirt did the person wear? And there's sort of guidelines in terms of how you can um, do the, the questioning better because they reduce the risk of unreliable information. Okay, so if you ask the public, what do they think about false confessions? So uh, this was a study that was done by Henkel um, and colleagues in 2008, um, and they wanted to understand what are people's attitudes and beliefs towards false confession. But this is what they found. Well, before what they found, I wanted to sort of mention this quote by Cassin. Reasonably, most people believe that they will never confess to a crime they did not commit, and they cannot imagine the circumstances under which anyone else would. So it's very much similar to, the, to what we discussed at the start, right? Nobody would confess to a crime that they didn't do because that's just illogical. But if you ask people, and you ask like big numbers of uh, samples, a uh, big sample size, 
a confession is a strong indicator of a person's guilt, majority of people agree, right, that if you, if you confess, you must be guilty. So majority of people believe that. If someone has confessed to a crime, they are probably guilty. About half of the sample believe that. Um, only a sub small subset of people, people who are mentally ill, people with psychological problems, are vulnerable to false confession. A very huge number of participants believe that. So this is all things that we acknowledge. Interestingly, this means that people acknowledge that false confessions can happen. But what is interesting is, when you ask them, do you think you would? Again, similar to the, the findings that we had just now, overwhelmingly people said, it can happen to other people, but it won't happen to me. And this is what we call a fundamental attribution error, where when some things happen, or it happens to somebody else, you would think that it happened to them because there's circumstances within them, you know, maybe they're not very smart, uh, maybe they, they were not very wise, they were not very rational. But it won't happen to me because I'm smart and I'm rational. So we, we have a tendency to attribute somebody's fault to something about them, but you won't. If, if it happens to you, what you would say is that, oh, it was circumstances that caused me to do it. It was not because of me. The, you know, they really, really made me convinced that I was that. So there's this idea that if something bad happens to somebody, it was because they asked for it. But if something bad happens to me, something caused it, not because of me. Okay? So this is what we call a fundamental attribution error in psychology. The study also looked at people's perception um, of the likelihood that a suspect is guilty based on what available evidence. So again, you can see that if there is evidence, DNA evidence, about 80% would think that the person is guilty because it's hard evidence. If a person signs a confession, again, 60% people think that you're probably guilty. Again, this idea that if you sign a confession, there's a high chance that you must be guilty. And, but we know through case studies and through the examples that I've shown you just now that sometimes it can occur even though it does not indicate your guilt. Okay. So, you know, most people, again, continue to believe that an innocent person will not falsely confess unless they are physically tortured or they're mentally ill. So what can we do? Electric recording of interrogation is a situation where everybody wins. Um, I know in Singapore, I've worked with someone with the Ministry of Home Affairs in Singapore where they have um, implemented com compulsory recording of suspect interviewing. In Malaysia, um, the child interview centre recordings do happen with the children, but I don't think it's still a mandatory for, for suspect interviewing. In Singapore, they had some uh, qualitative work where they interviewed police officers after their mandated interviewing, and they actually found quite positive feedback. Even police officers are quite pro-recording because they said, well, at least now, I, 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 I don't have to defend that I didn't use any, any sort of you know, dodgy techniques or so on. Um, and also, interestingly, we did some work with a, a very, very small sample size um, of police. We only had 40 participants. But we also noticed about, I think, 60%, the majority of people were okay with recording interviews. Um, but again, you know, this is a very bottom-up approach where we ask investigative officers and, you know, people who are more um, in, in, in the position of authorizing these things may not share the same, same ideas. Okay, not far now. I'm just going to sort of move on to a little bit. I've talked about all of the 
dodgy things that can be done. So moving forward, um, what can we do? Um, you might have heard about the peace model. Um, this is based on some psychological research. Um, I'm not going to talk about this in a lot of detail, but it involves planning and preparation, engage and explain, account, closure as well as evaluation. So, I mean, I'm just going to the data. Is it effective, right? That's what we want to know. Does the Mendes principles work? And Mendes principles is based loosely upon the peace model um, and the work that has been done on the peace model. So, um, Dave Walsh and um, Ray Bull, so this is from England. They examined about 142 interviews of people who have committed crime. And they wanted to know whether or not there's any relationship between how skilled you are in interviewing and the outcomes of the interview. Okay. So again, we talk about how the peace model is based on planning, engage, account. There's a closure, there's evaluation, and it's a lot of rapport building that goes on within the engage and explain phase. And account is where you want the suspect to give you the account, their account, not you assuming what happened, but then telling you their version of the story. And what they found was that if people were better at administering the peace model interviewing, it was actually associated with a higher number of comprehensive accounts, and it's also associated with more admissions and confessions. So it's something that we that we want, isn't it? As people working in the field and as police officers, this is a KPI we want to achieve. Better outcomes um, if you did interviews um, in a better way. So some, uh, some studies, they asked what, they wanted to know what, the, what are the strategies used and how do the suspects respond. And these are all analysis of real life interviews. Uh, 56 taped interviews with uh, suspected murderers and rapists. And interestingly, there, there were certain um, types of components of the interview that made people more likely to confess. So if they was rapport based, if it was based on empathy, um, open type questions, it was associated with an increased likelihood of admitting to the crime. But if they had a lot of negative questions, you know, implying that uh, they, they, were, they were unpleasant people or something that really, really negative, it was associated with decreased likelihood of admissions. Same thing found in, the suite, in Sweden, where um, they were asking murderers and serial sexual offenders about their experiences and how did the offenders respond to that interrogations. And in general, the uh, people who were being uh, interviewed perceived police officers to have two main types of approaches, a very dominant approach or a very humanitarian type approach. And statistically, when you account for these things using statistical methods, the dominant type of approach is associated with more denials. So again, showing that being coercive, being dominant, being unpleasant is not leading to better outcomes. If anything, it's leading to more negative outcomes. And humanity approach is associated with more admissions. All the, the European Western data. So what about, we know, what do we know about the data from the East? Um, we don't know a lot about this regional work here. Again, it's a work in progress, but in, in Japan, they did a similar uh, study. Um, and Wachi and colleagues, they, they asked police officers um, about their experiences interrogating suspects. What are the um, techniques that they use? Um, and they noticed that when the interviewers employed a relationship-focused style, suspects were more likely to make full confessions. 
they also looked at the personality of the officers. Who are the people who are more likely to get better outcomes? And the people who were engaged in active listening, rapport building, the discussion of the crimes, they were more likely to obtain full confessions and also more likely to gain more information from the suspects, as opposed to using very confrontational techniques. Um, and the more confrontational they were, the more likely the suspect were to avoid uh, being asked or they would just give very, very vague answers and avoid eye contact. So it seems to suggest that an appropriate use of empathy, you know, not asking you to sort of be friends with the suspect, right? It's, it's an appropriate use of empathy, trying to understand it from their point of view, um, is recommended in the Mendes principles and is found to be effective to get people to provide investigation relevant information. Again, you know, there's some, there's some uh, work that look into whether or not there are certain type of police officers they're better at conducting a type of interviews, you know, um, uh, and, and this has always, and, and again, the idea of whether or not people can be trained to conduct better interviews, um, it's, it's sort of a, a very messy literature, um, and I think, but I think the, the basic thing that, that authorities can provide is to, to um, provide some appropriate training so that they can do, do a better job. So these are all interviews uh, from the police, but a very, very controversial, well, not controversial, I mean, an interesting study that is done in the USA, and I say controversial because it's very difficult to get approval to do this um, from an academic perspective. You get um, prisoners to answer questionnaires about the techniques that police officers use. So in America, they did this study, um, and they found that when they asked prisoners about what do you think an in, in interview, police interrogation should look like? And did you intend to deny or admit to your crime? And this is a very interesting stance. So they found that 39 people had already, they already made up their mind before they went into the interview that they were gonna deny it. So these are the people that, you know, the technique is supposed to gain more information, right? So the, the Mendes principles apply. But look at this interesting 36% have entered the interview not yet deciding whether or not they want to confess or interview the fence sitters. So again, you're, what, what is interesting to, to, to know is how do you get them, if they were guilty, again, we cannot presume that they're guilty, but if they were guilty, how do you get them to confess? And if they're not, to not make them confess because that would be a false confession. Okay? But this also means that 25% of the jail inmates have already decided to confess anyway. So what's the point of going through the whole coercive technique if they were planning to com confess anyway? Right, so again, uh, having proper planning of the interview, having a, a more sort of ethical method of interviews may, may actually serve a better purpose because it means that you're not associated with bad, uh, worse reputation and so on. And um, so this findings show us that the assumption that a lot of us have that people will always deny accusation. It's not necessarily true. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a misconception. Um, and some suspects have said that they were waiting to see how they were being treated before they decided whether or not they wanted to confess. So again, you know, humanistic approaches may lead to better outcomes. Um, but in general, it's difficult for people to accept that they could do better. And we have to acknowledge that. So how do you approach methods without being upfront? You're rubbish, you could be better. 
and that's a technique, isn't it? You know, we have to be better ways at persuading people, um, and I think that's probably useful um, um, as we try to disseminate the information here. There's also more practical implications, which I understand that sometimes a lot of authorities, their hands are tied. There's financial resources. You need expertise uh, because to, to do quality training, it requires resources, time. You're asking police officers to take time out of their already day-to-day -day very, very uh, tedious jobs to, to do a training. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. And I talked about biases and misconceptions. This incorrect common sense belief, this idea that, but torture works. I know it because we've done it before and we've got confessions. But again, this misconception about um, people, uh, the misconception that people who go in, uh, who, who are um, arrested and being in the interview room are definitely guilty. That's also a misconception. And we talked about the biases that we may have. And also, you know, I, I, I think that the lack of this empirical data locally to support how effective this is, and I, and, and I touched upon this just now, it's, it's all nice and good that we are wanting to Im implement the, the Mendes principles, but you have to convince our local community that it will work. So um, just a very, very uh, final point to summarize what I've talked about. People can be induced to falsely confess, and there are a range of factors that can motivate this to happen. But, but my, my take-home message is that you know, a, a respectful, open approach is actually maybe a win-win situation. Um, but we need to be open-minded to adopting some of these principles. Um, and it takes a lot of work from, from all parties. And I'm so grateful that all of you are here today. So that's all for me. Thank you very much. Associate Professor Dr. Kai Lee Chung is Head of Psychology at the University of Reading, Malaysia. The transcripts for both episodes in this series on the psychology of investigative interviewing are available for download. Thanks for listening to Perspectives and we look forward to your company next time.